Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another great episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Ellis, accompanied by co-host Amy Vu. Hey, hi. Amy. Hi, hi. Hi, everyone. Amy, you've been having a good year so far? I'm having a great year, yes. Thank you. Well, what's made it great? <laughs> you it's 2020. Expect- my vision's <laughs> getting better. <laughs> I've heard that joke quite a few times. I'm sorry that our listeners had to hear that. All right. Today's podcast is a fantastic lineup. We are going to be interviewing key members of the International Bee Research Association. The International Bee Research Association has a long history of helping beekeepers and bee scientists around the world. I am privileged myself to be on the council of the International Bee Research Association, so I feel that it has a lot to offer to beekeepers, and as a scientist, I've benefited tremendously uh, personally from being involved with IBRA, both being on the council and, and publishing in their journals, et cetera. So today's lineup of segments, in the first segment, we're going to be interviewing Professor William Kirk who has a long knowledge of the history of the International Bee Research Association. We will follow that by two segments where we will interview editors of journals published by the International Bee Research Association. One of those editors editors is Dr. Robert Brochneider, and the second of those editors is Dr. Maria Buga. And so we're going to be talking with them about publications, about what IBRA has to offer to beekeepers, etc., But before we do all of that, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome from the UK, Professor William Kirk, who is a professor of applied entomology in the School of Life Sciences at Keele University in the UK, which is somewhere in the center of England. Professor Kirk is an IBRA council member, uh, similar to what we would call a trustee, and he has been that since 1992. Amy, help me welcome Professor William Kirk. Welcome. Hello. (laughs) Pleasure to be here. Thanks, William. I really appreciate you joining us. And so, you know, you're one of the first interviewees that we've had uh, overseas. So thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. So what we want to do is we really want to get to the heart of the International Bee Research Association. We want to be able to tell beekeepers what what it is, uh, how it started, where it came from, et cetera, and what it offers to beekeepers. So, Professor Kirk, you know, I'm going to start off with that question. What, What is the International Bee Research Association? Okay, well, it's a it's an organisation with members. Um, it, what it does now is it its mission is to promote the value of bees by providing information on bees science and beekeeping worldwide. So, if you're a beekeeper or a bee scientist, we 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 have uh, we try to help you. Um, it goes back quite a long way. When it started back in the 1940s, it was in fact it was formally uh, set off as the Bee Research Association in 1949. And its mission then was a little bit different because it set out um, that its mission was to advance the science of apidology, which 
is a rather general mission, but really it set out, it set out then, if you think back then, there was no internet, there mm. was very little communication between scientists. So uh, Professor uh, Dr. Eva Crane, who was then um, the chair of the organization and founder of it, traveled around the world visiting beekeepers and bee scientists and discovered that they had little idea of what was sometimes of what was going on in other countries. So she wanted to facilitate that. Of course, nowadays, that's more or less been covered by the internet. People can very quickly find out what's going on. And um, uh, there are sort of services which provide abstracts of uh, journals and so on. So people can keep up much more easily. So what IBRA has done has changed over the years. Instead of initially being an information service for bee scientists, it's become an organization that publishes journals, publishes books, and one particular thing that it does is it, it has tried to provide the link between bee science and beekeeping. So often when beekeepers talk to each other, they pick up bits of information or read about something on the internet that's not very reliable. IBRA has tried to provide the scientific basis behind uh, the information that beekeepers need. So for example, if they subscribe to uh, become a member and join Bee World, they know that it's been, information has been rigorously checked. So, as you see, the, the mission has changed over time, but we're still about providing information to bee scientists and beekeepers. And William, did you say apidology? Yeah, it's funny. That's a word that we don't use much here, but I, I, I often hear. I love that word. Could you explain what apidology is? Yeah, I think strictly when, when, when the f founding document was prepared, they invented the word, word and they called it <laughs> apiology huh. without even having the D in it. Apiology from a, <laughs> no, from a Latin apis for a bee. So it was the study of bees. Um, there wasn't a word for it in those days. So they invented apiology. And since then, I think people have preferred the term apidology. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in France, there's a journal, Apidologie, mm -hmm. which is, we pronounce apidology, mm -hmm. um, which is the study of bees. Sure. And I think you can, you can take it either literally as a study of honeybees or perhaps more broadly as the study of all bees. And I, perhaps I should say that Ibra is is not about just honeybees, but about all bees. So I, I want to get back a little bit to the history, William, because what, what you're talking about is really profound. So, you know, we could have another podcast just about Dr. Eva Crane, right? She she tremendously helped the, the bee world. But I love this idea. She was kind of before her time, right? Recognizing a need for scientists to be able to communicate with one another, but as well as beekeepers, because essentially that's what... You know, one of your two big products, and again, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Robert Brochneider and Dr. Maria Buga later, but you know, two, of, two of your big products from IBRA are, are respectively the Journal of Apicultural Research and Bee World. And JAR exists for scientists to communicate with one another, and Bee World exists mm -hmm. for scientists to communicate with beekeepers. So in many ways, Eva Crane had this vision for the International Bee Research Association, that was fulfilled. I mean, IBRA is doing that. It's it's bringing scientists yeah. together and it's communicating information to beekeepers. She, she was certainly ahead of her time. Um, in fact, she, she did a PhD in nuclear physics back at a time when... <laughs> well, who hasn't, William? <laughs> not many people do that now, but back then there weren't many women that did PhDs in nuclear physics. Mm -hmm. uh, but then she spent actually most of her life actually studying bees and, and reviewing and writing books and, and helping bee science and beekeepers, traveling around the world, visiting people uh, and sort of transmitting information. Yeah, I so just, yes, was, I she, she, she saw the need at the time. And of course, what Ibra has tried to do over time is not just do whatever she started us doing 70 years ago, 
but to actually see where the need has moved to. So mm -hmm. I think like now extension. most beekeepers can find information. They might need some guidance on what's scientifically accurate, but there's a, there's a surplus of information. Uh, I think possibly where there's perhaps more of a need now is in developing countries uh, where people are perhaps struggling. They have the internet, but um, you know, relevant information to help develop bee beekeeping um, organizations there is, is, is much needed. Sure. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring up something that, that that's not done necessarily anymore. But one of my biggest initial introductions to the International Bee Research Association is years ago, I was writing a manuscript right at the cusp of the time when the Internet wasn't really super available and super searchable. And I remember needing to look up historic records for disease and pest pressures around the world. And so I, I used one of IBRA's at the time flagship uh, efforts, which was apicultural abstracts, right, where where you guys had editors at Ibra who, who searched all the refereed manuscripts related to honeybees and beekeeping and published their abstracts in one place so that the information was very accessible. And as you shared, you know, that's largely been replaced by the internet today. But I think initially it was such a valuable resource. So that's an example of how, you know, how throughout the ages you kind of, you've kind of filled the gap and addressed the needs that were there at the time. Yeah. And, and it started off really as, as, as the Bee World Journal with mm -hmm. selected abstracts that beekeepers or bee scientists might find useful. Then it became its own specialized journal, Apicultural Abstracts. But over time, as information became more available, those sort of things became subsumed into larger sets of abstracts, web of science and so on. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we're almost coming around full circle to a time when scientifically interested beekeepers who now don't have access to such services, it's only the professional bee scientists who do, would actually like some of those abstracts, again, selected yeah, sure. of things that are developing in the field that might be relevant to their, to beekeepers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is, is could you tell our listeners, you know, roughly how uh, the International Bee Research Association is structured uh, managerially? So, so what is the, you know, who, who makes up the organization? Who moves it forward? Who runs it? Okay. Well, it's, it's changed over the years. Mm -hmm. um, we used to have a premises with a headquarters and staff employed at the headquarters, but uh, we have um, had to reduce our deficit and, uh, cut back somewhat. We are now more of a virtual organization. And in many ways, we've benefited because um, it means we can involve people anywhere in the world. So we used to have our council meetings at Cardiff in Wales in the UK, and people had to travel there. And it meant our international members of our council, the international trustees, and there were quite a few of them, were, not, were left out of the, of the running of the organization. But now that our meetings are virtual for the trustees, we can have people from all around the world joining in. So the, the structure where well, we have a, pr a president at the top, um, Professor Robert Picard, uh, who's the chair of the of the trustees or the council, as we call it. We have about, I think it's about 20 members of the council uh, all around the world. And they sort of lead on strategy and policy and what, what we should be doing. And then from day-to-day from -day management, we have a, a small voluntary management team of um three people and they meet probably about every month again virtually um, and then the we also then have editors of our journals so our current journals at the moment are, as you mentioned journal of apicultural research and bee world and we we employ editors to edit those and those journals used to be run separately by ibra and that was really a big struggle the way mm -hmm. journal publishing has gone 
it's very difficult to run your own society journal because you don't get access to universities uh, and libraries in the same kind of way. Most journals now are part of large packages. So we moved moved in, as it were, with Taylor and Francis, I think in about 2016. And that means that our journals are now available electronically mm-hmm. in universities all around the world. So you can either join as an individual and get the journals, or if you're a B-scientist in a, in, a, in a big institute, you can probably get online access as through your university. So something, you know, something that we kind of spoke about in a, in a last segment was about extension and research and how funding is really important, you know, as far as making sure that we're able to conduct, you know, research instruction and extension here. So, you know, as far as the funding goes, it sounds like you have a huge team and there are so many people that are part of this. Are a lot of these people volunteers? And, you know, how is IBRA funded? Yes. Well, <laughs> that, that has been an ongoing problem. Um, when IBRA started with um, Dr. Eva Crane, she was quite wealthy and she provided a house and then provided a building for IBRA. And back in about the 70s or 80s, we could get sort of development money to support IBRA uh, in the interest of beekeeping. But that faded in the, in the 1980s. And we entered a phase when we, we were really quite struggling. So we've had to lose staff over time. And now nearly everyone's volunteer. Um, and we have only just managed to balance our books. But there are lots and lots of things IBRA could do. As you saw, our, our mission is really quite open-ended. We could, there are lots of things we could do to provide information. But we have to limit it uh, to what we can achieve. Uh, we have a sort of... Um, a certain amount of assets, um, but we don't want to fritter them away, uh, <laughs> left from sales of the buildings that we've been in, um, and they're a, a useful buffer. But I know people often say, well, why can't we do this for scientists? Why, why can't we you know, hold big conferences and so on? And the reason is generally that they cost a lot of money. We don't have funds um, to, to spend on, on useful things. We have to generate the income. And the income at the moment... Um, comes from Taylor and Francis for supplying the journal, and it comes from membership membership subscriptions. So, so would you say that that's how maybe individuals can kind of support IBRA, um, either through finances or you know how else can people support IBRA? I, th- I think perhaps the two ways. One is to join, and they could just go to our website at ibra.org.uk. Um, and you can join as a member at different levels. You can be a, a basic member where you receive B World, or you can pay a slightly higher level and you get B World and Journal of Apicultural Research. Um, so joining and or subscribing is one way. And another possibility is to volunteer. Um, offer if, if there's some way you can help. We need people with uh, financial expertise, legal expertise, charity expertise, marketing expertise, lots of ways in which, you know, a, a small international organization could, could be helped. So, William, if you had to summarize the what IBRA does specifically for beekeepers, can you give us, you know, somewhere around two or three, hey, this is, beekeepers, this is why IBRA is of value to you. This is what we okay. do for you. We, we, we provide scientifically rigorous information, which we hope, we try to main, we, what we say is that it's the bridge between bee science and beekeepers. So subscribing to Bee World, you will find out things that are going on in, in bee science. 
if you subscribe to Journal of Apicultural Research, if you're a scientifically interested beekeeper, perhaps with a bit of a science background, um, that's one way of, of finding out what, what the developments are in the field. Um, we also have uh, quite a, a, a catalogue of books that we've published over the years, uh, which have, could be of use to beekeepers. Um, and perhaps more widely to people who are just interested in bees. So, I mean, I could mention, for example, we have books on bee anatomy. We have books, uh, a color guide to the pollen loads of the honeybee. So, if people want to identify from the color of pollen loads where, where bees are collecting their pollen. So, there are specialist books that beekeepers could, could buy. Members get a discount on that. Uh, they can subscribe, get Bee World and JAR, Journal of Apicultural Research. And when you join as a member, you don't just get the current issue, you get online access to all the back issues. And that's something I, as a, as a scientist, I suppose, but also as a beekeeper, find interesting. If you have a particular topic that you're concerned about, I don't know, you've got some problem with your drones or something, or some problem of insecticide worry that's concerning you, you can search and find if there's a back issue, a back article that might provide information or, or review on the subject that you can get access to. So I like this idea is IBRA provides lots of information for beekeepers and bee scientists. And one thing, William, I'm really glad that you mentioned was, was, the, was the book publishing that IBRA does. Some of my absolute best reference manuals for bees and or beekeeping are IBRA publications, you know, bee anatomy, bee physiology books, you know, bee plant books. You know, we here at the University of Florida, we have a, in our library a lot of IBRA book publications that we use routinely. And these things aren't just useful for us as bee scientists. They would make great gifts and great uh, informational resources for beekeepers. I'm really glad you mentioned the bookstore. Yeah. That's great. Pa pa Perhaps I could just mention that uh, Ibra is a charity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, it makes me it makes it sound as if I'm as if uh, Ibra is a publisher because we produce <laughs> journals and books. But we we produce the books that probably the big publishers wouldn't produce because they wouldn't be commercial. So we're we're not making a profit, um, but we're trying to find out the things that bee scientists and beekeepers need uh, and try to publish those. So, William, you mentioned, you know, the Journal of Agricultural Research and Bee World. You mentioned the bookstore that you guys have, these informational resources that you offer. Is, is there anything else you want to tell us about what IBRA might offer to beekeepers? Yes, perhaps I could mention an organization called Colos, which is a sort of shortened form of colony losses. It's not part of IBRA. It was set up some years ago uh, from, with European funding, but it's now become a worldwide organization of bee scientists um, doing research on, on bees and they've produced a series of papers, which we publish in Journal of Apicultural Research, um, as part of what is being called Bee Book, sort of as one word, Bee Book. Um, and it's a kind of practical manual of standardized methods for studying honeybees. So they cover topics like pollen, venom, uh, honey, uh, and so on. Uh, and I think we're now working on Bee Book 3, these are coming out as chapters. They're open access through Journal of Apicultural Research, um, and we're accumulating them steadily. And when we complete a, a B book volume, then IBRA is publishing them as hard copy, and the hard copy is available. So you can put it on your bookshelf, browse it, uh, but they're also open access, so you can see them online. So that's some, a way in which, just in a way in which IBRA as a charity has tried to support 
um, information about bee, beekeeping and bee science. So, William, I think that's a great example. As you well know, I'm intimately familiar with the bee book, being one of the three co-editors of that. And, and you know, Ibra really did help us get those out. I'll also echo the statement. You said all of the, ma- the, the chapters of the two volumes that have been published to date are, are available open access, so beekeepers can go to them now. And yes, some of them are very science heavy, but there are a couple of immediate practical application for beekeepers. For example, there's one on how to rear queens. There's one on instrumental insemination, things that are techniques that beekeepers can use. So I, I think that's a great service offered by yeah. Ibra. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up. And they're intended to be practical. So they're practical Absolutely. manuals uh, with standardized methods that uh, you can use and know that they've been validated. Well, Professor William Kirk, I really appreciate all the information that you provided on the International Bee Research Association. You know, I want to remind our listeners that we we are talking with Professor William Kirk, Professor of Applied Entomology, School of Life Sciences from Kiel University in the UK. He's been on the IVR Council since 1992. Professor Kirk, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us the background of IBRA, what it provides and does for beekeepers. I really appreciate you joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Absolutely. In our next two segments, we'll actually be interviewing two individuals who edit the journals that we've been talking about so much in this first segment. Uh, Dr. Robert Brochneider, who is the senior editor for Bee World, and Dr. Maria Buga, who is a senior editor for Journal of Apicultural Research. And don't forget, we'll probably have additional resources listed on our website so you all can go and visit the website so you can see what Ibra has to offer. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. Welcome back. So we're joined now by Dr. Robert Brochneider, who's a researcher at the University of Graz in Austria. He is specifically works in the Institute of Biology there. But for purposes of this podcast, we are interviewing him because he is also the editor of Bee World, the other major periodical produced by the International Bee Research Association. Robert, thank you for joining us from Austria. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Well, good. Let me let me just jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about Bee World, its history, and where you fit in? Bee World is a journal published by International Bee Research Association, and it's now one hundred one year old. Wow! It was founded in nineteen hundred and eighteen by an Egyptian living in England. <laughs> so, in two thousand nineteen, we we celebrated one hundred years of Bee World. Okay, you can find an open access article um, about the history of of Bee World and. At the, at the current form, it, it appears in four issues a year with 32 pages, and it contains articles, reviews, plans for B sections, and these are peer-reviewed articles that we publish. Yeah, I think you told me one time, Robert, you, you told me like a number of manuscripts that's been published or articles that's been published in B-World over the years. What was that number? It was something crazy. Yeah, all the articles that ever been published in B-World are available online wow. on the website of sure. Taylor and Francis. And a rough estimate says it's about 6,500 articles. Oh, wow. That's so <laughs> many articles. I, 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 I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but do you have any guess as to the number of um, um, times those articles have been cited in history? We're talking about thousands upon thousands of times. 
Yes, I have very good record on that. And oh. that's also something that I dealt with in, in the article on 100 years of B-World. Sure. Um, just to give you one impression, there is one methodological article from Lavu okay. on um, how to to um, analyze the pollen grains in honey. Yeah which is a highly cited article. Don't ask me for the absolute number now. <laughs> I, I calculated that from the 1970s, somewhere in the 1970s, this article was published until the, today, it is cited on average every three weeks. Wow, Whoa. still, that's crazy. <laughs> so I mean, that, hundreds, hundreds yeah. or thousands of, of citations. Don't yeah. get, don't ask me for a uh, sure. Number. Well, I think I think one of the neat things, Robert, though, is that speaks volumes mm -hmm. um, uh, of of what this particular journal offers to beekeepers, but but also be scientists, right? You you mentioned very briefly that it's you've got open access articles but more importantly you notice you you know noted that these are peer reviewed articles which means that when you receive those articles you send them out for review can you tell us a little bit about that process for b world yeah in best case uh, the articles that i receive are written let's say in a little bit more popular way sure. than usual scientific articles sure. Still, the topic must be original. So okay. we don't take any articles that have been published before. Um, but if you are, for example, an advanced beekeeper and you have a strong opinion about bee breeding, or if you are a scientist and you think, wow, this is related to beekeeping, this could be of interest for a bee world, then, then you're playing the, the same game as for uh, scientific articles. That's also important because we are playing also the game of uh, counting references, as sure. you just asked. Mm -hmm. we, we are asking people um, to, to provide um, references if they are writing a review article. We are asking uh, offers to, to provide us the background if they, they present new scientific uh, findings, for example. So we are following the rules. And this is one of the major differences uh, that we have to any beekeeping journal. The second difference I would say is we are B-World, so we can't deal with, uh, let's say, in this month you need to do that in Florida or in England because sure. it's, it should be B-World and it's it's beekeeping around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the things that you said that's really most important to me, you know, in that regard is that it's it's advanced topics, right? These are things that are vetted. They're vetted by you as the editor. They're vetted by associate editors. They're also vetted by vetted by colleagues who are peer reviewing these. Uh, one thing that you said earlier that I want to make sure our listeners picked up on, you mentioned that there is a 100th anniversary article that's open access that's available to read online at the B World website. We'll make sure and link to that yep, in our show notes so you listeners can read that and get a little bit uh, more detailed history of B World. I also like the fact that you note that it's a it's more of a popular journal than something maybe than Ibra's sister publication, the Journal of Apicultural Research. This means for our listeners that it's written, the articles are written in a way to be uh, um, applicable and accessible to readers from around the world, right? I mean, I, I recently saw articles in there about different beekeeping styles in Africa, as it were, and you know, and it's very relevant to beekeepers who are there. I've seen articles from Eastern Europe and from South America, et cetera. So these are popular articles, meaning that they're accessible and usable by beekeepers in, in addition to bee scientists. One of the um, nicest things that, that I think uh, we can offer with Bee World is um, I call the beekeeping in articles. Sure. <laughs> 
For example, if you plan to go wherever you want to go on a holiday, search the B-World archive and you will see that there will be uh, an article on, let's say, beekeeping in Cambodia, let's say honey hunting in somewhere in Asia. Wherever you want to go, I'm sure we have an article about the beekeeping and honeybee or general uh, bee situation in that country. Yeah. So how do you actually select these articles that you're putting in? Well, we follow the, the rules of, of any uh, peer-reviewed journal. So offers are, everyone is free to submit. Okay. Then the articles uh, will be peer-reviewed. That okay. means I send it out to uh, one or two experts in the field that say, well, this could be of interest or well, this is not such good quality. And then those articles that fulfill the, the, the um, uh, requirements of, of our standards, uh, of publication standards, that those are the articles that are picked for, for printing. Do you have a rough estimate about uh, the rejection rate? I mean, do you publish about half the articles you receive or three quarters or more or less? I would say, I would say the rejection rate is not at um, rejection. Okay. It's about 30%. <laughs> Acceptance would be 70. So, okay. But it's, sure. okay. it's about 30% rejection. Yeah. Rate. You're, you're more positive. So you're using the acceptance rate, which is <laughs> 70%. I don't know why I was saying the rejection <laughs> rate. I guess I was being quite negative. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that, Robert. <laughs> So what do you think then that this journal has to offer for beekeepers? Remember, there's two bees in a podcast is listened to by we, we've had thousands of beekeepers listen to it, which you know is kind of surprising to us. We've had and beekeepers. non-beekeepers. Yeah. And non-beekeepers. We've had people from over 35 countries listening to this fledgling podcast. So so what does Bee World have to offer beekeepers from around the world who are going to be listening to this particular episode? I think it could be their start to get um, into reading scientific articles. For Absolutely. example, mm -hmm. if you find an article, you might follow the five or six or seven most important references that are given in there. And you can really elaborate on, on that certain topic that you are interested in. So it's it's really a start to get used to, to read such articles. So I guess that takes me to someone who's just kind of new into beekeeping and new into reading some of this literature. Where would they even start? You know, there's just it seems like there's so much. Yeah, how do they how do they find you, Robert? Just type in Beeworld or go to Ibra website <laughs> and then you find all the links. Then you just play around. should be easy to find. It's currently hosted because it's published by Taylor and Francis. So what it should be really easy to find. Uh, I've got like, I like lots of things about B-World. Amy, you were asking specifically, like, where do you get started? If you mm -hmm. just pick up one of the issues of B-World, you're going to find an article that's relevant to you. And, and I think that's yeah. important. And the other thing, too, I like another thing I like about B-World is it's, it's the simple things. For example, I really appreciate the standard that you've set, Robert, for the quality of the images and figures. You know, there's really good photographs in it, so people aren't having to use their imagination mm -hmm. about what a top bar hive in Kenya hanging from a tree looks like. You actually show that in great detail. So it's it's a it's a uh, aesthetically pleasing journal in addition to a journal that's full of that, you know, lots of information for beekeepers. 
that's also one of the reasons why it still uh, uh, is sent out as a printed version, I think. Yeah. Well, we, we spoke about that all the articles are available online. Uh, for Ibra member, members, this is included. Otherwise, uh, you can purchase single articles. But I think if you're really interested, you should go for a Ibra membership. Then you get four issues per year printed and you're trying to make, as you say, an appealing product. Yep, absolutely. So what do you think the bee world has to offer bee science and beekeeping moving forward, right? You know, we, we've talked a lot about the history of bee world and its contribution to beekeeping and bee science thus far. But what do you think it's going to do for beekeeping and bee science in the next 50 to 100 years? <laughs> I know that's, that's a, hard to see far out. But <laughs> uh, I think that the name or the word world in the, in the title of the publication is still important. Mm -hmm. Sure. So... Uh, most of our research is coming from North America, Europe, or China, for example. Yep. But um, we still can discover so many things in other parts of Asia, for example, Absolutely. than China. In Africa, that's why we had this special issue on beekeeping and bee research in Africa and also South America. And I think um, when, when you speak about science now, that um, I would like to engage more with uh, the students, let's say master students or even bachelor mm -hmm. students that have nice findings that will not maybe make up for a full publication in, in Journal of Agricultural Research or in another uh, scientific journal that uh, they presented in a nice way as a, in, a, in a poster or as a presentation at a conference, but send us a two-pager with the most um, important findings and then you can reach the scientific community also. Yeah, I think because it's citable and you have something for your CV. Yeah, I mean that's a good appeal to the fledgling and the and the budding researchers out there around the world. And I, and I, and I love your emphasis on the word world. It truly is an international publication that introduces all of its readers to beekeeping and and to some degree bee science absolutely everywhere. It's been such a great resource over these years. So, Robert, I really appreciate you joining us today on Two Bees in a Podcast to talk to us about Bee World, its impact, and all the things that it, it's doing for beekeepers. Thank you. It was my pleasure to speak to you. Absolutely. So, listeners, that was Dr. Robert Brochneider, who's a researcher at the University of Graz in Austria. He works specifically for the Institute of Biology, and he is here today as the editor of Bee World, one of the International Bee Research Association's two key publications. Thanks again, Robert. Thank you. For additional resources, visit the podcast page on our website, ufhoneybee.com. Hello and welcome back to Two Bees and a Podcast. We are continuing our discussion of the International Bee Research Association, and we're going to do that by looking at one of its key publications. That publication is the Journal of Apicultural Research. Here to discuss that publication with us is Dr. Maria Buga. She is from the Agriculture University of Athens in Greece. She's joining us from Greece. In fact, she works in the Laboratory Agriculture of Zoology and Entomology. Her specialty is in the genetics of honeybees, varroa, and some other insects and mites, but she emphasized that her main focus is on honeybees and varroa. And in addition to all of that, she is also the senior editor for the Journal of Apicultural Research. Maria, thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. 
Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to join you. Perfect. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. So let's just start right at the beginning. You know, I, I, we've already told our listeners that one of IBRA's key publications is the Journal of Apicultural Research. So you could could you tell us a little bit about the Journal of Apicultural Research, what it does, what it publishes, um, and, and how you manage it? Yes. Uh, Journal of Apicultural Research is among the most uh, famous scientific uh, journals dedicated to the uh, research on bees. Yes. Uh, the Journal of Apicultural Research publishes original research articles, theoretical papers, notes and comments, and reviews to all concerning all the scientific aspects of the biology, ecology, natural history, conservation of all types of bees. It is a very old journal. The first issue was published in 1962 under the editorship of Dr. Eva Crane, that she also uh, created uh, uh, IMBRA, International Bee Research Association. Uh, we are now in the 59th volume. Wow. After so many years, yes, next year we are going to celebrate 60 years wow, wow. Yeah. of the journal. We have five issues per year. One issue is a special issue. The forthcoming issue of this year is a special issue of the Colosby book for honey, the chapter on honey. And there are more than 2,000 papers published. Wow. Now, uh, we have taken over the editorship with Dr. Melanie Parejo from uh, Switzerland and Spain. And we give great effort for a quick review process and for high quality of the papers that are published. So Maria, Maria, let me let me let me ask you a little bit about that. One of the things that our you know our listeners will want to know is our, our listeners are, when they think about bee journals, they think about the popular journals, like in our case, the American Bee Journal or Bee Culture, mm-hmm. or in the UK, Bee Craft. The Journal of Apicultural Research is different because it publishes research papers. You know, as as scientists, we conduct studies on honeybees, and we. Um, Those studies really don't exist unless they're published in a refereed journal. Journal of Apicultural Research is one of those journals. So we can submit our manuscripts to the Journal of Apicultural Research. And what what happens? Let's say I do a research project on Varroa and I submit it to the Journal of Apicultural Research. What happens after me submitting that manuscript to you? Uh, First of all, as you already mentioned, it is a scientific journal. Sure. The current impact factor is 1.752. Okay. And the procedure is like this. You su- the scientist can submit the manuscript uh, via a platform, the editorial manager system, because the publisher of our journal is Taylor and Francis. Mm-hmm. And then the review process starts. That means that we invite at least two reviewers in order to have a trusted, serious procedure. And after this, there is the decision of the editors regarding acceptance, rejection, revision of the paper. And after all this, the final, at the end, the paper is accepted or rejected. In case that it is accepted, it is first published online and then it is assigned 
to an issue of the journal. And we try this process to be as quick as possible because the scientists are interested to publish quickly mm-hmm. their research. Yeah, I think I think that's perfect. So let me explain to the listener. So so listeners out there, you know, if I were to publish an article in a popular magazine, and, and not popular because a lot of people read it, but popular means that it's it's available to the masses, right? Written in a way that beekeepers can you know access that information. Magazines such as the American Bee Journal, Bee Culture, etc. There's really no review of that manuscript. The editor will review it and maybe suggest some uh, grammatical changes and a few comments here and there, but it's not a peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. Journal of Apicultural Research, on the other hand, when I submit my research paper to Maria, she receives that and says, okay, Jamie, you wrote an article on Varroa. I'm going to find two of the world experts on the topic about what you wrote. I'm going to send that article to them, and they're going to read it to see if the science is valid. And if the science is valid, they'll suggest to Maria or one of Maria's associate editors that the paper should be published. If they have problems with the science or problems with the statistical methods or problems with our interpretation of the data, as reviewers often do, they will suggest changes to that manuscript that we then have to make as we negotiate that article through the review process. So a peer-reviewed article means that this article has been reviewed by our research colleagues around the world and found it to be acceptable for publication. And Maria, that's really what the Journal of Apicultural Research does. It's a clearinghouse for quality research on honeybees and beekeeping that undergoes a peer review and that you guys publish. So in many ways, you guys are providing a great service to beekeepers because you're able to to publish the latest research on beekeeping, beekeeping management topics, honeybee health, honeybee subspeciation, just all kinds of topics. So let me ask you, what types of manuscripts are published in the Journal of Apicultural Research? What topics, what broad categories of topics do you publish? Yes, actually, almost everything is around the all types of bee. Uh, we have uh, manuscripts on hive products, sure. honey, wax, pollen, for example, or uh, research articles on uh, genetics and conservation of honeybees and of different kinds of bees, toxicology regarding the effects of uh, some uh, factors like uh, pesticides, that may affect uh, honeybee health, pathology and parasitology regarding the diseases and pathogens of uh, honeybees, that it is very, very important, especially for beekeepers, because uh, the main output is new methods that can be applied in beekeeping in order to facilitate beekeepers to maintain their hives in a good uh, situation. A history of uh, honeybees, ecology, all topics. Yep. It sounds like it sounds, Dr. Buga. It sounds like there's a lot of different topics and focuses that the journal has, and it's really amazing because I think, I mean, I'm not quite sure if a lot of beekeepers have access to this or whether they know that it's even out there. So part of this podcast is sharing, you know, the the access to the Journal of Apiculture. So I guess my question is. 
you know, how do beekeepers get access to these publications? It sounds like there's a lot of information that's out there that people may be missing when they're doing their research online and looking for information that they could find useful. Uh, first of all, there are articles that are open access. Sure. That means that the authors have paid for this to mm -hmm. the publisher, Taylor and Francis. And on Ibra website, there is a link directly to the all the papers that are published in Journal of Agricultural Research, and they are open access. And that means a lot of papers that are free to everybody. Uh, on the other hand, for the other articles that are not open access, there is an option for membership to IMBRA, uh, that it is uh, £150 per year, that there is access uh, on the Journal of Agricultural Research, and Big World as well. So beekeepers can read the open access articles or they can subscribe to the Journal of Apiculture Research. They'll also get Bee World. We'll talk with Robert uh, Brochneider about Bee World, but beekeepers can get access to it. It's online. So I, I think that's useful. And in this case, it's peer-reviewed information that they can that they can see where the cutting edge of science is at the moment. So I guess, you know, with some of the scientists that are out there, is there a mentorship program or how does IBRA promote, you know, younger researchers and people that are up and rising in in the in the focus of apiculture? Yes, IMBRA uh, offers awards to the best student poster presentation or oral presentation in several conferences, like this of Colos Conference, uh, uh, Colos Honeybee Research Association, and for example as well, in the forthcoming European Conference of Apitology that is going to be on September, next September in Belgrade, sure. IBRA offers a membership for students' best poster and best oral presentation, subscription to BeWorld and to GAR respectively. Well, great, Maria. I really appreciate it. You know, your your work through the Journal of Apiculture Research is not just important for bee scientists, but it's also important for beekeepers around the world. So thank you so much for what you do for the beekeeping industry and for bee research in general by serving as the editor of the Journal of Apicultural Research. Thank you also very much of what you are doing. We are all together <laughs> Absolutely. to support beekeepers. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Maria Buga, who's from the Agricultural University of Athens in Greece. She's joining us from Greece. She's from the Laboratory Agriculture of Zoology and Entomology. She has specialties in honeybees, varroa, other insects, etc. But she is joining us because she is the senior editor of the Journal of Apicultural Research. Dr. Buga, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you so much for your kind invitation. Absolutely. So listeners, I just wanted to take just a moment to reiterate some of the things that Robert and Maria said about Bee World and the Journal of Apicultural Research, respectively. So anytime a scientist does a research project, that project doesn't really exist 
until it is published in a refereed manuscript. That's important to hear. A refereed manuscript simply means that colleagues around the world have reviewed the manuscript and found the science worthy and sound enough to be published. Now, it doesn't mean it's perfect, doesn't even mean it's right. It just means it's been scientifically vetted. That is what the Journal of Apicultural Research offers us. It offers us a venue to publish our research papers. It may be on things like honeybee ecology or behavior, conservation or toxicology, but it also includes a lot of bee management-related research, especially disease and pest research. All of that type of thing gets published in the Journal of Apicultural Research. Bee World, also an uh, IBRA publication, it serves as the bridge between science and beekeepers. And its job is to publish that science is very applicable to beekeepers, as well as what we call popular articles, which are articles that you might find in publications such as the American Bee Journal or Bee Culture, etc., where uh, an authority is talking about a topic kind of from a non-science perspective, but in a digestible format that's applicable to beekeepers. And that's what Bee World does. So, you know, scientists like myself or Cameron, who's here and joining us today, we, we might publish articles in Journal of Apicultural Research, and then we might write a digestible version of that that we publish in Bee World or American Bee Journal, et cetera. So IBRA, through those two journals, provides a wonderful service to beekeepers because they provide the platform JAR, for science to be published, and the platform B-World for science to be digested and disseminated to the masses. So both are very important journals. So both Robert and Maria discussed how you can access articles. You can join the International Bee Research Association for a basic membership fee, which will get you B-World publications that you can access online, or you can uh, join IBRA, the International Bee Research Association, for a slightly higher fee, which will also get you access to the Journal of Apicultural Research. Now, both Robert and Maria multiple times mentioned open access. So when scientists like myself publish an article in a journal like the Journal of Apicultural Research, the journal has to cover its cost, and they do that through subscriptions. So in order to access those articles, you might have to subscribe to the journal. But an open access article is one where the author paid to have that article available whether or not you have a subscription. So when an issue of the Journal of Apicultural Research or B-World is published, if the author paid an open access charge for a particular article, you will have access to that article whether or not you subscribe either of the two journals. And so the way you know, you can go to Bee World's tab or the Journal of Apicultural Research tab at the IBRA website, browse their issues and their articles, and the ones that have open access by them are free to you to look at, read, and uh, use in your in your own beekeeping lives. Those that don't, you will have to pay a subscription to access or go to a library that might have subscription that where you can get access to that. It's also kind of important to know that as scientists, it, it costs us money to publish and it's not cheap. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars for 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 an open access journal. I mean, those are several thousand dollars to publish. And, and so oftentimes we'll try to write those costs into a grant that we that we uh, acquire for the project. Um, but but I mean, as Jamie mentioned, I mean, the, the science doesn't really exist until it's published, um, but it's it's something that. Um, you know, actually comes with a little bit of a financial cost uh, for the scientist as well. One of the things I'll add kind of in conclusion, if you see an article that you really would love to have access to and for which you don't want to pay the charges, every article 
has a contact author listed for that author, uh, that article. So if the article has 10 authors, one of them will be the contact author. If you identify that individual and email them, they almost certainly will send you a PDF of that article that you can read. So that's a wonderful way to get those articles as well. And that's, you know, to me, one of the great things that the International Bee Research Association does and being a member of it uh, benefits you is the dissemination of cutting edge information about bees, bee research, and most importantly, bee management. So I think it's valuable to be a member of the International Bee Research Association. And I think they historically have provided a great service to beekeepers around the world. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Are we, are we live? Yeah, I mean, it's recording. Live. <laughs> <laughs> we are at that question and answer time. We might just go ahead and keep Jamie singing his Mortal Kombat. It wasn't Mortal Kombat. What was that? That was Pump Me Up, I'm going to go play a basketball <laughs> game. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we right before we came on live, I was singing some of my old high school basketball hymns. <laughs> I think we might have recorded get, that. No, I hope not. <laughs> okay, so we have three questions. Jamie, you want to answer them? Only one at a time, please. Okay, we'll start with the first one. <laughs> so I was at the ABF conference not too long ago, and they had this board that basically had everyone's questions on it, right? So there was a trade show. There were all these vendors. There were a ton of vendors talking about honeybee health and guts, and you know there were different supplements that they were selling, whatever, to, to help with the honeybee gut. Well, everyone's question was, well... What's up with the gut? Yeah, why... Why is this a thing, and why do we care about the honeybee gut? Well, first of all, I want to know what ABF is. Is that like the oh. Awesome Bee Federation? Yep, Awesome BB <laughs> American Beekeeping Federation. Yeah, it's funny that that you know I'm not surprised that um, gut biology was a topic of discussion at the 2020 American Beekeeping Federation conference. And that's because when I go to research uh, meetings, I will routinely see scientists, colleagues from around the world talking about mid-gut microbiota, probiotics, and all this stuff. So what does it mean? Mm -hmm. Right, Honeybees have a di digestive tract. So it, it, the food goes in the mouth. It travels through the esophagus into the crop, through the crop, into the ventric ventriculus, through the ventriculus as the ileum, and then on to the rectum, and then so on. So the ventriculus is essentially the, the stomach slash small intestines of the honeybee. Okay. And the ventriculus is this kind of sausage-shaped uh, portion of the digestive tract. And that is where nutrients from food are taken up into the hemolymph, right? That's where it goes through the, the, the walls of the ventriculus and into the hemolymph and transported it to the tissue that needs it. So that is also the site of various beneficial bacteria that live in honeybees. And humans have long uh, known that, that we have beneficial bacteria that live in our gut to help us digest food better. In fact, there's even recent research that show the bacterial flora that we have in our bodies are good for, even for our mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, there's similar research happening in the honeybee world. We're just now understanding that these microbiota, these bacteria that are inhabiting the honeybee gut are important for honeybee health. So people are asking questions, what are those bacteria? 
Um, how much of them are there? How important are they for digestion? How important are them? Are they for immune function and the bee? So the reason you're hearing about it is because people are starting to realize that these things are important and there may be a lot of things that affect them, those bacteria, that then have downstream impacts on bee health. So these companies that you're seeing, they're selling probiotics for the bacteria, mm-hmm. right? They're selling things that they hope will improve the health of the honeybee midgut, and then of course have you know overarching effects on bee health. Um, there's not a lot of research on these probiotics at the moment. Some of them may be great, some of them maybe not. It's, it's, there's just data lacking in general. But I I feel that the way the research is exploding on this topic, that we're going to know more and more and more about midgut health of bees, and consequently see more and more and more probiotics come to the market. And I'm I'm confident that there will be some, if not already, that it, it someday. Uh, that that will improve bee health if we feed it to bees. And that's the whole premise of these probiotics. Yeah, and we'll probably have to ask the bees how their mental health is. Well, maybe so. <laughs> it's funny, though. I, you know, I hate to chase this rabbit, but it's it's incredible what scientists are discovering that mid-gut bacteria are doing for all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, I would not be surprised at what we find that, that honeybee mid-gut bacteria contribute to bee health. Sure, sure. All right, so for our second question, um, it's about super sisters. So what are super sisters? A fantastic super 1980s band from Germany. Are yeah. they really? No, I totally made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been. I believe but you. <laughs> this is going to be an easy question to answer. So a queen bee, when she is born, when she's you know somewhere 7 to 14 days old, will go out on her mating flight and mate with multiple males, You know, somewhere mm-hmm. in the neighborhood of 15 to 20. Mm-hmm. So when she produces offspring, right, let's just make the math easy. Let's say she mated with 10 males. If she's producing offspring and you take any two workers, there's only a one in 10 chance that they're fathered by the same drone. Sure. So that's no big deal to us. But when we want to, for research purposes, control the queens in our colonies, it's hard to do that if we're randomly grafting queens. Yes, they may all say have the same mother if they come from the same colony, but they don't necessarily have the same father. Mm-hmm. So to reduce variability among our colonies, we can use a tool called producing super sisters. And so what we'll do is we'll take a queen, allow her to lay eggs, and we will graft one larva from that queen. So we've produced an adult queen who is a virgin. Mm-hmm. With that adult queen, we can instrumentally inseminate her with the semen from one drone. Okay. So one queen carrying one drone's semen. Mm-hmm. The daughters she then produces, we can graft and produce queens from. And since all of those queens have the same mother and the same father, they are super sisters. So we then can use these super sisters to head each of our experimental colonies and reduce the genetic variability in the projects that we're conducting. Hmm, that's very interesting. It's, it is a really cool tool. The, the, the next layer that's even a little bit more difficult is, yes, we've got these super sisters, same mother and same father, but how do we ensure that their offspring are all similar? Because each one of these uh, super sisters can then mate with their own drones. And so a lot of scientists will do is they'll take semen from lots of drones homogenize it mm-hmm. and parcel it out, parcel it out between each queen. So all the queens have the same mom and dad and they're carrying semen 
from the same pool of drones. And so that's a pretty good way to homogenize the genetics in a set of colonies. Yeah, that sounds pretty insane. We'll and have to bring someone in to talk about some queen breeding sometime. I think that's a great idea. Great. Um, so just for the sake of time, we'll go on to the third question, but I have so many other questions about queens and super sisters. <laughs> um, the third question we have uh, is the difference between orientation flights, swarming and robbing. So if there's a beekeeper and they see, you know, all this bee activity out in front of the entrance of the hive, how do they know what's happening? You know, Amy, I've never had that question uh, asked of me before. I, I happen to think it's a brilliant question because mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's something I'd have never considered. So swarming. Uh, you said swarming and robbing and orientation flight. So let's yep. just start with swarming. Swarming is the attempt of the bees to make a new bee colony. So they're rushing from the colony. Mm -hmm. So in swarming, the activity at the colony entrance is a mass exodus from the colony. Hundreds or thousands of bees are leaving the colony. Mm -hmm. It is directional away from the colony. I've seen that before, yep. and it's really intense, and it's really cool, but it really kind of... It, it just, kind of punches you in the gut because you're is. like, I'm about to lose a colony. Yep. All right. So that's a flight, you know, steady, intense flight away from mm -hmm. the, the hive. So robbing, on the other hand, is when bees are trying to get into that hive. Bees from another colony are trying to get into that hive to steal the resources from that hive. Mm -hmm. So there will usually be flight... At the colony entrance, there'll usually be a lot of uh, bees attacking one another. But even more than that, there are bees trying to get into other places mm -hmm. around the hive. The crack between supers, where supers meet, up under the lid, around the feeder jar, mm -hmm. on top of the hive, under the hive. I know that activity at a colony entrance includes robbing when I see bees trying to get in everywhere around that hive in addition to the yeah. colony entrance. I didn't right? know that. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So that's how I usually recognize robbing. The third one is orientation. So orientation flights are when bees are transitioning from young bees to older bees. So older bees spend a lot of time outside the hive flying. Well, older bees know where their hive is because they've left it and come back to it multiple times. But those sure. young bees that are transitioning to that older bee stage don't know where their hive is. So they will come out of their hive hover around the entrance and land again. They'll come out of their hive and hover further around the entrance and then land again. And they'll come out of the hive and go further from the entrance and then land again. Essentially what they're doing is they're trying to place their hive in context with surrounding landmarks and they're doing this at an, incre uh, an increasing distance. Mm -hmm. And when trying to figure out, you know, if I'm if I'm this close to the hive, what's here? If I'm this close, you know, a little bit further sure. back still, what's here? If I'm further back still. So it's almost like they're trying to get comfortable recognizing their hive from greater distances until they're overall, you know, overall comfortable leaving the hive and doing their foraging behavior. And they kind of start doing that by circular. Yeah, it's it's this very it's it's almost like they're flying towards the hive and in these like circular or zigzag or figure mm -hmm. eight patterns mm -hmm. all while looking at the hive. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll land and then start over again, but go further out and then hover while looking at the hive and then land and then go further out. So that's kind of how I tell the difference between the three of those. Great yeah. questions. That sounds like when I first started driving. So, Amy, I have a question for you. What's that? How can people submit more questions to us? So people can submit more questions. We really need our followers to be commenting or emailing us or, you know, however you want to communicate with us. 
I'm not going to give you my cell phone number, but I'll give you Jamie's cell phone number and you can <laughs> call and text him. So we really do need listeners to be commenting. We have so many listeners just from around the world already for our podcast and um, keep them coming. So we, we like to we like to see this. And one day we're hoping to maybe make it live so people can actually call in and we can answer questions live. But we're not there yet. We're, we're hoping to get there, but I'm, I'm optimistic we will someday. We will one day. All right. You can submit those questions on our uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagrams at UF Honeybee Lab. Thank you so much for joining us for Two Bees and a Podcast. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to the following. To our editors, Shelby Howell and Bailey Carroll, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, Two Bees and a Podcast would not be possible. So thank you. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.